and welcome to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, um, we're going to continue on in our study this morning in the, the life of Abraham. And uh, so if you got your Bibles with you, you can turn to chapter 18. We'll, we'll get there at some point. Um, the book of Proverbs is filled with, with incredible f- sayings of wisdom. And, and um, I've always found it hard to kind of memorize the, the book of Proverbs because my mind kind of works through structure and, and it's hard to put a structure to a collection of, of sayings like that. But one, one verse in Proverbs that I've not had any trouble memorizing is Proverbs thirteen twelve, where it says that um, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And it's one of the hardest things in life to live with a, a dream that is unfulfilled, to live with the disappointment of that dream, um, <clears throat> to go through life and, and never to see it happen. And, and maybe to, to almost make insult, uh, add insult to injury is for you to see others experience that dream, have it fulfilled and have it fulfilled so easily. Because number one, it says that your dream's not crazy, that it's possible, that others seem to be able to get it. But then it seems almost doubly then, well, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? Why, why am I not getting it? And so it's another cruel reminder to see all these people experience what you've, what you've longed for. And so that, that hope that goes on unfulfilled can eventually, if it's not dealt with, could, could destroy a person, literally, physically. There's a great book, famous book out there called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a little book written in, uh, I think, 1946 by an Austrian Jew who survived the, the Holocaust and the concentration camps um, that the Nazis had during World War II. And he, um, he outlined in great detail what it was like to live under those conditions. And, uh, and really why he was there was simply because he was a Jew. And while many died in gas chambers or they were shot in the back as they dug their own grave, some just died. They went to sleep and just didn't wake up in the morning. And, and Victor tells in the book, he says he, that the, he and the other prisoners began to spot who that person would be, that they could predict it, that, that they would see someone going through life and they go, you know what? In about two days, they're, they're a goner. They're not going to make it. And the telltale sign was that they lost hope. That maybe they were hoping by, by a certain date or something would, wouldn't happen, but there was something they were placing their hope in. And when that hope was disappointed, when it was destroyed, they, they just gave up. They, they lost hope. They lost the, the, drive, the drive and desire to live. And, um, and then they would die. And so when this hope deferred makes the heart sick, it, it's in many ways, it makes the heart sick. So with that in mind, let's, let's consider now Abraham's wife, Sarah. You know, she likely would have been married at a very young age, around 15 to 20, somewhere in that time period. And for a little while after not getting pregnant right away, she, she probably told herself, it's okay, 
I got lots of time. And maybe, maybe my body's not yet ready yet. It's still growing. I'm still a young woman. Um, and so maybe, maybe I eventually will have a child. I just need to have more time. But over the next 60 years, no child would come. And so now at age 75, uh, probably experiencing now postmenopause, she, she's kind of lost the dream of having a child herself. And so she chooses to have it through surrogacy. She chooses that Hagar will be the one to carry her child for her. Except that doesn't go very well um, because once Hagar got pregnant, she wanted to, to take over the position. She wanted to be the number one wife, the head of the household. And, and so there became all kinds of jealousy and bitterness and strife between Hagar and Sarah to the point where Hagar eventually has the child Ishmael, but it's not Sarah's anymore. She's lost that dream. And so now for the next 13 years, she watches this boy, Ishmael, grow up. And that must have been even harder. Because see, at age 75, she's childless, but so is Abraham. They're in it together. But now Abraham has a child. He has a son. Which also means it's not Abraham's problem that they're not having a son. It's her problem. So for 13 years, day after day, she would be reminded of a dream that's unfulfilled, a hope that has been deferred, put off. And all she's got is this disappointment and she's alone in it. No one could understand. And so it's in this kind of a place, in this kind of a, of, a, of a despair kind of place where the enemy loves to swoop in. And so all kinds of seeds of doubt and despair. Doubts about God, doubts about his promises and his care for us. Doubts about his character. Doubts about his love. I mean, how many times have you had the thought, God, if you really loved me, you would, or you wouldn't let. And then even doubts about our own value and worth. And so what do we do when these doubts begin to flood our thoughts? Because if, if we don't address those doubts properly, then those doubts will turn into despair. They're going to turn into resignation or apathy where we just sort of, we just give up. Just give up on life. Because all that despair, all that, uh, that, that frustration, all that doubt just begins to overwhelm our soul. And that's what this morning's going to be about. How do we deal with doubt? How do we face that? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're glad that you're here, not because we invited you here, but we brought you here because we're here. You dwell in us and we in you. And so wherever we go, you're there. We call upon your name. We call upon your power this morning, especially this morning. Dealing with this subject of doubt and frustration and hurt and despair. They're so precious to you, Lord, the people who struggle with this. And so I pray this morning that they would find comfort, find hope that hope would be restored and a hope that is found in you and you alone. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We're not going to, 
We're not going to read the entire passage that we're studying here in Genesis 18, but I want to actually start in 17 uh, because it, it kind of matters to what we've, we're going to talk about this morning. And so if you remember last week in chapter 17, God appeared. He showed up in a, in a physical form to Abraham and he, he went further with the covenant. Uh, it further explained what the covenant would include. And, and here now what he did is he says, I'm going to first change your name. No longer are you going to be Abram, great father, but you're going to be Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. And not only that, uh, these multitude of nations are going to come from you, but kings are going to come from you as well. You're going to have your own heir coming from you to be all that. And that heir, he says, is actually also going to come through Sarah. And so it's interesting that God didn't just speak to Abraham or about Abraham. He does it all for Sarah as well. Changes her name from Sarai, princess, to Sarah, princess of a multitude. And promises the exact same thing. From her, a multitude of nations. From her, kings will come. Many kings will come. Ultimately landing with Jesus himself. What was interesting though, we pointed out, is that it says that God blessed Sarah. I will bless her, it literally says. It didn't say that about Abraham, but God said it about Sarah. And I think the significance of that is because God knows what she has endured for these 89 years that she's lived. The frustration, the disappointment, the loss of hope. And God says, I'm going to bless her. And what was Abraham's reaction to this? Oh, thank you, God. I knew you could do it. Is that what he does? Says he fell down and laughed to himself. Really, God? Really? I mean, we're pretty much done. We're, you know, old. It ain't going to happen, Lord. And besides, won't you please just accept Ishmael to be my heir? Please let the promise come through Ishmael. And he begs with God that Ishmael be the one. But God said, no. God didn't didn't accept Ishmael because the reality is Ishmael was a product of their own effort, a product of the flesh. And no matter how good the flesh looks, it cannot please God. It's Romans 8. Your self-effort, no matter how good looking it may appear, because it didn't come from God, unacceptable. It's not good enough. It has to come from God himself. So Ishmael could never be good enough. It would have to be through Isaac as God promised. So now we come to chapter 18 and some time has passed by. We don't know exactly how long has passed by between 17 and 18. Might've been a few weeks, might've been a month or two, but it's not very long because Abraham is still 99 years old. And so a little bit of time has passed by and it's the middle of the day now. It's hot, the hottest part of the day. And Abraham's just sitting in the doorway of his tent, just trying to stay cool, which means, you know, do as least amount of work as possible. And he's just sitting there chilling. All of a sudden he looks up and there are three men standing before him. And he recognized one of them. God has appeared again. Just as he appeared earlier in 17, he appears again in physical form. And, and Abraham, it says he rushed, ran to God. He ran to this man, he bowed down. And he says, if, if you found any favor in your servant, my Lord, please stay and let me, let me get you water for, to drink and water to wash your feet and I'll get you some food to eat and you can rest before you go on your journey. And God says, okay, that's good, do it. And what's amazing is then Abraham runs all over camp after this. Remember, he's 99 years old. I'm half his age and I'm exhausted thinking about that right? Hottest part of the day, runs inside quickly. Sarah, make some bread. 
lots of bread. Lots more than these three guys need. Make lots of bread. Right? Then he runs out into the field and he finds the herdsman. He, gets, he picks the, the choicest calf, the one that was the most tenderest, the one that was the best, the good one. And he says, now cook this one up. So they do. Hottest part of the day, they're baking. Hottest part of the day, they're cooking over a little open pit fire, a barbecue. But Abraham's going to love these guys. And so he does all that. And then he grabs some milk and some curds or some yogurt. And he serves all this to these three men while they're resting under a tree. And Abraham's just watching, just in awe that God would come. Well, that's now where we're going to pick it up. In Genesis 18, in verse 9, beginning verse 9. And we're going to find out the real reason now that, that God showed up to speak to Abraham. It says in verse nine, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. So, so God's asking where's Sarah? And he knows where Sarah is, but I think he's making a point that he wants Sarah to hear this. And Abraham says, well, he's, she's right behind me. She's in the tent. And so God goes on in verse 10. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, it wasn't that Sarah was trying to eavesdrop, that she's sitting there listening. I mean, maybe she was, but, but the point was God wanted her to hear it. God wanted her to know this promise. Now, evidently, God's repeating the promise that he gave to Abraham in chapter 17, just a short while earlier. A, a promise that apparently Abraham failed to deliver to Sarah. Now, I know this might shock you to have a guy not pass a message on to his wife. You're going to have to use your imagination here. I know it's shocking and surprising, but every so often it happens, all right? Some might even argue it's biblical. All right. So, so she's hearing this, that in a year, she's going to have her own son. Now, verse 11 goes on. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. So they're both old, but that past childbearing means that she is postmenopausal. There's that, that, that ship has sailed. That's, it's not happening for them. And so she says, and it says in verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. Now a more literal translation, a better translation would be now that I'm worn out, I'm now going to have the pleasure. I'm now going to have my dream fulfilled when my husband is old. Now notice the difference. I'm worn out, but he's old, right? Just point that one out, right? But now that I'm tired, now that I'm 89, past childbirth, now I'm going to have this child. Now it's going to happen. And she's laughing to herself. She, she thinks it's ridiculous. Now she didn't laugh out loud and she's behind the tent wall so no one can see her. But yet God does. In verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? God didn't say worn out here. He said, no, you're both old, just for clear, right? Verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it. First time she says anything, however, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. 
I, re- I read that last part there and I, I kept picturing Robin because I could, I could see Robin saying that, right? I said, I didn't laugh. No, but you did laugh, right? That's my Robin impersonation. I thought about getting dressed up for it. Wearing a sweater, but I didn't do that. I don't know what you guys are thinking, but, um, but God knows exactly what's going on in her mind. Didn't see her, didn't hear her, but he knows. He knows exactly what's going on. And, and I don't think he called her out to embarrass her. That wasn't the point. Why, what would God gain from embarrassing someone? Nothing. I think the reason he said you laughed, he called her out on that, is to show Sarah, I didn't see you, I didn't hear you, but I know your heart and your thoughts. And if I can do that, nothing's too big for me. Nothing's impossible for me. And so, so let's consider that now because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at this news. They laughed at the idea that they were going to have a child and raise a child, even despite, you know, being well past the childbearing age. And in this case, Sarah never even having a child. They both doubted God to his face nonetheless. And if we're honest, every one of us can relate to that. Every one of us can relate to the idea to struggle to trust God. Now, some of you might say, well, no, no, I've, I've never doubted. To which I would say, no, you doubt it, <laughs> right? It's part of the human condition, right? If, if you can't admit that you're doubted, then I'm telling you, you're living in denial. You are lying to yourself because the reality is we've all experienced it from time to time. In fact, every sin is a product of our doubt. Every sin, think about it. Sin is the product of not trusting in God. And so we've doubted God in some way. We've doubted, we've doubted that God would be enough. We've doubted his love for us. We've doubted his provision or his care. And we think, you know what? I need to take control. I need to do it because who's going to look after me? So I'm going to be the one to figure it out. And so whether that be through, through taking control through anger or manipulation, or maybe you're trying to run away and escape our problems through food or through work or through drinking or social media scrolling where you're just on social media over and over and over again. It could be lying to protect ourselves much like Sarah did. All of it, every single sin is the product of us not trusting God that he's enough and that he wants to and he will look after us. And I know I've, I face my doubts on a regular basis. Now there's some, some big picture doubts, right? Big, uh, questions like, does God even exist? Has, has anyone else experienced that? I, I often experience that. God, is this real? And I might even ex- have those questions or those doubts after an incredible time, maybe uh, here on a Sunday morning or, or in a retreat somewhere. And I come home and I start to go, God, is this real? Are you real? And those questions begin to just sit there. Or, or is this the word of God? Is the Bible accurate? Can we trust it? Are the stories real or are they just myths and legends? Do I, do I believe the story of creation as Genesis lays it out? Or do I listen to what science tells me and the scientists at least tell me with the big bang and the evolution theories? Is that what I got to listen to? We go back and forth with these doubts. 
How do I know that Jesus is God? How do I know that Christianity, that Jesus himself is the only way? I mean, isn't it all just touching different parts of an elephant that all the same elephant? Or is there in fact only one way that leads to God? Jesus Christ. Those are kind of big picture doubts. But then there are the more personal doubts. God, do you really love me? I mean, today, maybe in my past, but you know what? I screwed up. I really blew it. Aren't you angry at me? Aren't you disappointed with me? Because I am. I'm so, so disappointed with myself. How could you not be? I don't love me. How can, how can you love me? And is that love really enough? Is it really enough that I don't need any love in this world? Like John the Baptist? Will you provide for me? I mean, have you seen the economy? Have you seen interest rates? Are you going to look after me? Are you going to help me in my time of need? God, I've been struggling physically with this thing, this ailment, this illness. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Are you going to heal me? So many questions, so many doubts. And maybe the worst part of it is people are often shamed at this point. Shamed for the questions, shamed for the doubts. Well, you need more faith. If only you had more faith, those prayers would be answered. So it's all on you now. You're failing. And those questions and that shame, all it does is it just drives our doubt inside, deep down. We suppress it. We hide it. We pretend everything's great. We, we just ignore the questions, just keep moving forward until eventually we discover that that doubt has eaten away at the foundation of our faith. Now there's too many holes, got nothing to stand on. So we all have doubts. Doubts of his existence, doubts of his plan, doubts of his timing, doubts of, I have doubts of my role. Am I really, am I really capable to get up here and address you guys and speak to you about the word of God? Every week I drive home, and I, I make it to the roundabout generally, maybe a little bit further, maybe not even as far as roundabout, but I make it to the roundabout and I have all kinds of doubts that I didn't deliver what God wanted me to say. That, that it, was a, it was a perfect, slow moving, fastball down the middle and I fouled it off and I blew it. I have so many questions and doubts about myself. And, and, and again, God, are you enough? Do you, do you really love me? I mean, do you, do you really want to look after us? Let me look at your creation and the state that it's in. Or did I hear you properly? All kinds of questions and doubts. So please understand you're not alone in having those doubts. In fact, really, really what it does is it, it just makes, makes you human. So maybe the first thing that you take away from this morning is you have permission to struggle. It's okay. It doesn't, that your struggle says nothing about you as a Christian. It says nothing about your value, your worth, your love, your acceptance. It just means you're human. That's it. We all struggle with it, right? Just as gas will sometimes exit from your body from time to time, right? You will have doubts. I know not a pretty picture, but that's what I got. So, so accepting the reality that you have doubts is important because now we don't have to be in denial with it. Now we can face it. 
We can address it. Psalm 31, turn to it. Psalm 31 and verse 22. The writer says this, as for me, I said in my alarm, I said in my fear and my anxiety, I'm cut off from before your eyes. God, you've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. You've forgotten me. Can you understand the angst within this, the psalmist? Nevertheless, nevertheless, you have heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you, his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who hope in the Lord. If you got these doubts, the first thing you do is cry out to him. Bring him your questions. Tell him what you're feeling. Don't be afraid of the questions. The old Scottish preacher, George MacDonald has a great quote on this. He's, he says this, that doubt is the hammer that breaks the window clouded with human fancies and lets in pure light. Doubt is the hammer that destroys shallow Christianity, surface Christianity and drives you to him and draws you into a deeper faith and a deeper trust. Those doubts are good, Right? Now, right now in our, in our time, the church is going through a, a large time where a number of people are going through what they're calling a deconstructing their faith. And this could be good or bad. Um, I, think, I think it's bad and I've seen it bad in, this, in, in, in a lot of ways where basically what happens is when people deconstruct their faith, what they're doing is they're redefining what faith is. The problem is someone has to be the arbiter. Someone has to be the standard of that. And when, and when you make yourself the one, you get in all kinds of trouble. When you become now the one that says, well, this is true. This is not true. I think Jesus said this, but I don't think Jesus said that. I think God is like this, but he's not like that. And I get to be the one to decide. I get to be the one to pick and choose what's sin, what's not sin. I'm making myself God. And we're back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They became their own God. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. See, the arbitrator of, the, of truth can't be you. That's why Jesus says, I am the truth. He's the only one that could be that arbiter. He's the only one that could define what's true and what's real. And so instead, what we should do is we should take those questions. We should take those doubts to him. And, and dive deeper into allowing God to show us what is real and what's, what's the lies are, where we've gotten off track to, to destroy some of the traditions we've held on to, some of the beliefs that we've grown up with that, that aren't actually in his word, that aren't true of who he is. For example, there's a lot of misconceptions out there that every time you sin, God turns his back on you because he can't look on sin. Well, denies the reality that God did something about your sin on the cross. Amen. So he never will leave you nor forsake you. He'll never turn his back on you. Well, we break fellowship though when we sin. No, no, you don't. If, if you were to walk out of here today and walk into, you know, a strip club or a country music bar or something, you know, you go into some den of Satan 
If you're making the connection to the Western bar, that's, that's up to you. All right. So, but if you walk into a den of Satan, where's Jesus? He's not outside. He walks in there with you and he says, Mike, you don't belong here. Let's get out of here. But he's with you. Cause I'll never leave you or forsake you. Right? So there's some things that we do need to deconstruct. There's some things that we need to destroy and blow up and get rid of. But we let God be the arbitrator of that truth. So don't be afraid of the question. In fact, God welcomes it. Isaiah 1.18, God says there, he says, come, let us reason together. It sounds so formal. That word reason though is literally argue. God says, come on, bring it. Let's fight it out. Bring your questions, bring your arguments, bring your contentions. I love it. Let's reason. Let's argue it out together. Just let's talk about it. And too often we just don't give God the chance. We don't bring him our questions and doubts. We just try to bury it. Because somehow we think that that's lacking faith. Here's another misconception about faith even is that, that faith is kind of a, a leap in the dark right? That there's, there's reason and there's understanding and that reaches a point. And now that's where faith begins. No, it's not where faith begins. Faith is there the whole time. Faith looks at what's real. Faith includes what makes sense. And then it goes, applies, what do I'm going to trust in? What am I going to believe in? So talking about this story of Abraham in Romans four, it says that Abraham, he considered the deadness of his body. He didn't think, you know what? I am feeling pretty good. You know, I think I can do this. He knew I'm 99. My body's not working. I'm a little years away from this little blue pill showing up. So God, my body ain't going to do it, but I, I trust you. His faith was in God. That's what matters. And so the question is, where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith in the scientists or in science? Do we put our faith in ourselves? in our own abilities, in our own power, in our own strengths. Do we put faith in our feelings? Well, if I feel this, it must be true. Therefore, this is what's reality. And my emotions, my feelings dictate what's truth, which is a, which is a difficult way to live. Do you put your faith in your mind that what you can understand, that's what you're going to trust in? Or do you put your faith in your willpower? And your ability to cause certain outcomes, to control certain outcomes. Is that where you're going to put your faith in? You're going to put your faith in your government? Oh, you poor soul. And that don't matter which party is in power, by the way. Do you put faith in money? In friends? In your spouse? Or do you put faith in faith? So a lot of these faith healers are doing, if you just had more faith, if you had more faith, Ian, you'd be healed. And so you just got to do it. You just got to try harder. Or are you going to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, if you're, if you're currently in this place of doubting, if you're struggling with despair and frustration and, and all this unmet hope, then I want you to know you got my compassion in my heart. And I would love the opportunity to sit with you in this season. Just to sit with you and help you Ask those questions, figure it out. I know how hard it is to live without hope. A level of despair where you just want to give up. To live with these doubts, to live with that level of uncertainty 
It's so hard. So you've got my compassion, you've got my gentleness, and there is no condemnation. But I want you to know some things. First thing I want you to know is that whatever you're going through, this too shall pass. Everything has a season. Everything has a, a, a limited time to it, right? Creation lets us know this, right? In terms of how seasons work, constantly changing, or even just how the moon changes over every month or how the sun every day, there's a cycle to it. There's a beginning and there's an end. With every end, it starts a new beginning. So no matter what you're going through, it will pass. And the good news with that is right now, even if you're in the darkest moment of your life, there's no amount of darkness that can extinguish the smallest amount of light. You know, that's true, right? That if we shut off all the lights here, taped all the windows black, and there's zero light in this room, the smallest candle will still stand out. No amount of darkness can extinguish the smallest light. Now it may take time for your eyes to adjust, right? If we, we suddenly go from this bright light to this little small candle, it's going to at first seem dark, but give it time. You'll see that that little light was there the whole time. And that's God. Sometimes he's there in obvious ways, sometimes in subtle ways, but there's always this little light there. And eventually that tough time you're going through will pass. The second thing I want you to know is there's great value in what's happening. It's great purpose. You know, I thought about Sarah and Abraham, like, God, why did you wait? Like they could have been 40. They could have been 50. Like it could have been that they entered into Canaan and, and Abraham 75 and Sarah 65. And suddenly she gets pregnant. That might've solved some problems in Egypt, by the way, right? Her showing up pregnant might've, you know, made the Pharaoh ask some more questions. So God, why did you wait? And here's what I came up with. That if she got pregnant before this time, she wouldn't have seen the miracle. No one would have. We would have just chalked, chalked it up to, she got pregnant. You know, yeah, it took a while, but hey, naturally happened. And we wouldn't have seen the hand of God. We wouldn't have seen that God was the cause of all this. See, Sarah getting pregnant at 89 may not have been the immaculate conception that Jesus was in Mary, but it was a miraculous one nonetheless. And it was an opportunity for God to show his power and his glory to Abraham and Sarah, for them to see that God, your hand is truly upon us. It reminded me of in, in John chapter nine, where the disciples see a blind man. And what was the question they asked Jesus? Who sinned? Was it this man or his parents to cause him to be born blind? I, I thought, Okay, I could see the parents doing some sin before he was born, but what does an unborn child do in the womb? Like, was he like kicking the mom's bladder too much? Oh, that's it, enough. We're, we're striking you down. Is that, is that what, I mean, that's their thinking. But what was Jesus' answer? Neither. It is to your benefit. It is to your benefit because you're going to get to see the glory of God manifested here through miraculous healing. And so God waited and it was hard, but he had a purpose to display his glory and his power to show up in a way that they never dreamed possible. That Isaac, 
this promised child, this miraculous child would be of God, not of themselves. Other times the wait though is hard. The Bible calls this a time of testing, specifically in James chapter one, a time of testing, a time of a trial. And I think the testing is really to show us what our heart's desires are. I would counsel a lot of people and, and they're struggling with something and there's something in their life, a marriage or a child or a job or a dream that's not fulfilled. Maybe it's a dream of a spouse, the dream of a child. And it's not fulfilled. And, and really what came about was that that was their God. That's what they wanted more than anything else. And God was a means to an end to it. So if I check all the boxes, I pray, I worship, I surrender, I I trust him, I read my Bible, I I give, I do all those things. Then God, will you give me what I want? And he's a means to an end. God can't be a means to an end. He can't be second place. He's got to be God. And sometimes that that time of, of testing, that trial begins to expose in us, what is it that we really want? It's okay to want those things, but do I want God more or do I want God less? Would I, would I trade my dream for God or would I trade God for my dream? And sometimes that difficulty is really what God's showing to us. There's a, a musical artist out there, Benjamin William Hastings. He's written many of the songs that we sing here. And he's got a great line from one song called Feels Like a Blessing. He says, don't curse at the light while you learn from the dark. Don't curse at the light. Don't curse at God from the lessons that you learn in the dark. There are certain things in this world that you can't learn except through trial, except through difficulty. Third thing I want you to know is what to do when the doubts come. Not if, but when. Again, don't be afraid of them. You don't need to suppress them. Ask the tough questions but also don't let the doubts rule you. Don't let them dictate what's true and what's real. Don't let them dictate what you're going to, res- to do as a response. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. And it doesn't mean you have to let those feelings control you, right? We have a will that can override our emotions, can override those doubts. And so sometimes that's what we need to do. Let me give you this illustration. Imagine in uh, World War I where they had trench warfare, right? They're in each trench and they're just firing back and forth. And imagine now one of your buddies gets shot in that battlefield in between and he's just lying out there while bullets you know, are, are whipping by and they're firing mortars and they're getting closer and closer and the, your buddy's gonna die. And suddenly someone jumps up, runs across the battlefield, puts him over their shoulders, fireman carry style and runs back. And you approach the guy and you say, man, were you, were you afraid? No, not at all. How much courage did it take for that guy to do all that when he had zero fear? None. Courage requires fear. So imagine now you're sitting there and you're seeing this and you're filled with fear. You're filled with anxiety, but something overrides it. And despite all that fear, you jump up, run across, drag your buddy to safety. That's courage. 
because you didn't let the fear control. You knew the reality, you knew the risk, you knew the danger, how real it was, and yet you went. Same is true with our doubts. And when you have those questions, feelings, emotionally, it's a chance for you to exercise your faith. It's a chance for you to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ here. And here's the thing, that guy in the, in the trench who's filled with fear, but decides to get up, he might think, you know what? I'm going to fake courage here. I'm going to fake it. And you know, that's real courage because it's not a feeling. It's the action of it. And so what you can do is you can act on that faith, act on that trust in Jesus Christ, despite what's going on around you. And finally, the fourth thing that I want to share with you to do, and it's probably the hardest, is to surrender it, to yield it over to God, all your hopes, all your dreams, all the outcomes that you want, everything you're afraid of even happening and coming to pass. We got to surrender that all into God's hands. I often think of this as an open hand where there's certain things in our hand. Maybe it's your spouse or your children or, or, or whatnot. Right now I got, I got kids who are learning to drive and I'm terrified because I know some of you are also on the road out there. And, and I'm realizing that when my children go off driving on their own, I am not there to help. I am powerless. I mean, it's one thing if I'm sitting beside them, I can still do some things. But when I'm sitting at home and they're off somewhere else, I got no control. And so I got to say, God, they're yours. They're your kids. We gave them to you when they were first born. They're still yours. So do what you want with them. And God, if you take them out of my hand, so be it. And if you put something else in my hand, so be it. But I have an open hand. The opposite of that is when I have a clenched fist and I'm holding on to it. Everyone make a clenched fist right now as hard as you can. Hold that for 20 minutes. Not easy. You'll cramp up, but do this for 20 minutes. Rest. So what we're doing is we're surrendering the outcomes because the reality is there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. Now that doesn't mean that we become passive, right? That we go, oh, it's God, you know, that's up to you. Take a step back. Abraham still played a part in all this, right? Again, it wasn't an immaculate conception. He played a part. He had to be involved in what God was doing. And that's the same with true with us is we do what God asks us to do. But the outcome, the timing, all of that is in his hands. Those are the four things I want you to know. But now I want the rest of us to know something, to know something again about the heart of God towards those who are struggling. We get to help them. And in Jude 22, Jude writes, have mercy on some, especially those who are doubting. Show them mercy, not condemnation, not judgment, but show mercy. In Isaiah 35, three to four, it says, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble to, to say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Or in Hebrews 12, 11 and 12, all discipline, all trials, all suffering, all disappointment, all miserable moments, they don't seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, there's purpose in what you're going through. There's something God is doing. He's training, he's building something in you. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. You see your brother struggling, come alongside them. Put your arm around them, maybe hold them up. There have been times, many, many times I'd say to people, I know you don't have hope, but I have hope. So trust my hope for a little bit. Just help, I'll help you and I'll walk with you. This is no condemnation, no beating them up. There's just mercy and love and kindness. That's what we get to offer as a community. Some practical ways you can do that is, is sit down and read the word with them. You can listen to worship music together or even alone pray. It's the best one. Maybe even just sitting with someone and talking with them like a counselor. We've, we're blessed with many counselors here in, in our fellowship. We got all the, you know, not all, but a lot of the counselors from Crossways to Life and the pastors. We love to just sit with you and love on you. And, and we do that by helping reorient your mind back to Jesus. See, that's the key. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about praying. It's not about, about listening to worship music and, and, and chatting with people. Those are all just avenues. They're just simply vehicles or vessels that get us to the main point, which is encountering Jesus. Meeting with him, speaking to him, and more importantly, listening to him. Because it's turning our attention back to him. All right, let me close with this because I want, to, I want us to see God's perspective on Genesis 17 and 18, right? God says to Abraham, you're going to have an heir. It's going to come through Sarah. And what was Abraham's response? He laughed. Sarah, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a, you know, a year from now when you're 90 years old, you're going to have a son. And what was Sarah's response? She laughed. Well, how did God see it? Well, it's recorded for us in Romans chapter four through the apostle Paul. You don't have to turn to it. I just want to read it quickly. Beginning in verse 18, speaking of Genesis 17 and 18, Paul writes this, in hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't ignore it. He didn't fake it till he make it sort of idea. He understood the reality of the situation. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he's also able to perform. And hope against hope, he believed, understood the reality of the situation and did not waver in unbelief. As my one friend said about this passage, God, have you read your own book? They laughed. They thought it was ridiculous. See, we, we see that and we, we jump on that and go, look at the doubts. You know what God says? And despite it, what did they do? They still trusted me. They had questions, they had emotions, they had feelings because they're real people but they acted on faith. And God says, they did not waver in unbelief, but they trusted me. They trusted my character. They put their faith and their hope in me and who I am. And what I was able to, what I promised that I was gonna do, 
That's what they chose to do. See, too often we, we look at one simple moment and we make a judgment on ourselves or other people in that moment. And God looks back at a lifetime and he says, you know, it took you a long time, maybe, but you got there. And that's what matters. That's the key in all this. And so they didn't let their doubts stop them from trusting God, despite what they felt, despite what they saw, maybe even what others told them. They placed their hope in the safest and greatest place, God himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we started this morning in awe of your love, this reckless love that would chase us down there's no barrier, no mountain. There's no, no lie, no darkness. There's nothing that can stop your love. As Psalm 23 says, your goodness and mercy will chase us down and hunt us down throughout the all, our, every day of our life. That's who you are. But Lord, it's hard to live in this world where we don't yet fully see everything. We haven't yet fully experienced everything. And we've got an enemy who's competing with you as to what we're going to believe. And so it's natural and normal to have doubts, to have fears, to have anxiety, and to have the grief that comes with that. And I pray, Lord, that first that we would be a church, a fellowship of believers that would be known for that love and compassion that we wouldn't condemn these people, but we would run to them, run to their aid and sit with them and pray with them, hold them up if necessary. And that through us, they could see you and see your love and have that hope restored. But for that to happen, Lord, my greatest prayer is that they will choose to trust you. They will put their faith in the covenant and the promise and your character and who you are and what you're saying and what you're doing and what you have done to make us who we are today. And may we become a light in a dark world as a result. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.